0: For those of you who are just joining us, you may never come back now. (laughs) But we've been listening to a letter, we think was written by the Apostle Paul, writing to a bunch of churches that were just getting off the ground in what is now Turkey, it was called Ephesus then, and we're almost at the end of his letter, but he can't finish that letter until he starts talking to... What are some of the most fundamental relationships that exist within humanity? And we've talked about marriage two weeks ago, and we talked about work last week, uh, last week from Andrew preaching, and this week we're talking about the family. And obviously we've, we've chosen two clips there that's speaking about the, the nuclear family, the individual family, but I, I, would, I would just like to reiterate, as I said at the beginning of our worship, this is a sermon for everybody in this room, whether you're part of a nuclear family or not. Because the body is the body. And uh, uh, we knew it took a village a lot longer than when it was said back in the 90s. But Paul can't finish his letter until he starts talking about what are the implications of the gospel for living in the family. We need to talk about family dynamics. It's an only reasonable topic or theme before we close out a letter of such importance. And what we're going to find in this letter, what we're going to find in this few verses, is that the relationship between parents and kids, it's a two-way street. There is learning to be had in both directions. Kids from parents, parents from kids. And unless you enter into that with that assumption, you are not fit. You are not ready. You are in need of wisdom. And so what we want to consider today under two headings is this, what, am I, what, are, what do kids need to learn from parents, but also what do parents need to learn from kids? And it's not just a, well, wouldn't it be nice if, it's a, this is non-negotiable. What does it look like for that two-way street of learning between both caregivers, parents, grandparents, and whatever kids they become responsible for? It's going to go fast, so don't blink. If you wouldn't mind, let's stand, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. the first thing I want everybody to notice is not even what Paul is saying, but who he is saying it to. And who is he talking to at the very beginning of this passage? He is talking to, verse 1, children. Children of all ages. I believe the children are... Sorry. Um, to anybody that can understand his words, that's who he's talking to. Children of all ages. And... Um, that should be uh, important for us to hear because he's not saying, parents, tell your kids. He's talking to kids. He's talking to teenagers. He's talking to students. He's talking to middle schoolers. He's talking to elementary kids. Anybody can understand his words. That's who he's talking to. And if I might say that, you might go, um, well, so? Kids, the fact that he's talking to you directly and the reason I'm talking to you directly is for you to know this you matter. You're not just here. You belong. And so while I'm talking to you directly in response to Paul talking to you directly, I'm going to let the adults and the caregivers in the room do what you do. You guys can pass notes, pass gas, give each other wedgies, look at your phone, whatever you want to do. i got to talk to them first. The fact that he's talking to kids is here to say, you are part of this. You are not an afterthought. You are not the JV and the adults in the room are like the most important. You're on level playing field. This is addressed to you. He's concerned for you. His thoughts are about you. And that's why he's talking to you. Because you're part of this. You have a place here. You have a seat here. You have responsibility here. You're part of this. He's talking to you. All right, fine. He's talking to me. That's wonderful. I'm included in this group. What is he saying to me? Children, obey your parents. Oh. I'm glazing over now. I heard that before. This is not a shock to me. Why are we talking about this? Chill. Chill. I want you to hear me. I want you to feel me. I want you to feel him. When he says, obey your parents, is part of this bigger family, look, um, that is not just him saying what is already straight up to you. He's not just saying, do what they say. He is saying that. It's not always saying. When he says, children, obey your parents, he is actually asking you to trust them. To trust that they know more than you. To trust that they see more than you. To trust that they can anticipate more about what might happen than you can. Not because you're dumb, but just because you haven't lived long enough. He's asking you to trust them. Here's an analogy. When you got out of the car seat, and now you were, you know, in a big boy or a big girl seat, they strapped you in with the seatbelt. They did that with the car seat too, don't worry. But they put you in the seatbelt. And You drove off, and and God forbid uh, they swerved to miss, I don't know, a bicyclist coming in the way, and they hit a, I don't know, a fire hydrant, right? If you're not in that seat belt, then you become the pachinko ball inside the car. Right? And that's bad. That would be bad. And the seat belt held you in. The seat belt protected you in that God forbid moment that something went astray. Your parents are designed and commissioned to be your seat belt because there is stuff that happens in this world that will throw you throw you about the cabin of life and something's got to restrain you in your seat to protect you. That's what your parents are. You don't believe that a lot of the time. But they are your seatbelt. That's their calling. That's their responsibility. That's what they're doing. It's more than just saying do what they say. Even though that's legit they're asking you, Paul's asking you to trust them because they are your seatbelt. And in trusting them, what Paul really means is this. Kids, I want you to believe that your parents love you. I want you to believe that your grandparents love you. I want you to believe that your caregivers love you. The, the funny clips at the beginning of the sermon. If you think they're in this because they get the thrill out of barking orders, you are Wrong if you think they are in this because they believe that by having you and raising you, it is a life full of happiness. (laughs) Come on. Come on. The reason parents and grandparents and caregivers are in all of this and the reason they haven't quit is because they love you. And you have to hear that. You probably already know that. But you've got to hear that. But I want you to note really clearly, note really carefully, that he says more than just children obey your parents. He puts a little tagline there. He says, children obey your parents in the Lord. Don't, don't glaze over that. Don't, don't read too fast. Don't be a lazy reader. Don't miss that phrase. When he says, children obey your parents in the Lord, that means a particular kind of obedience. It is possible and quite likely that you have heard someone say at some point in your life, kids, that what it means to know God is to learn how to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not just following commands. At some point, you have to think that the Lord is beautiful and he's got something good for you. And he's not just giving you orders because he gets a thrill out of having authority over you. If that's all you know about God, you don't understand him. to understand him, to know him, is to at some point realize, I love him. Because I think he loves me. I think he's for me. If you have ever been baptized as an infant, you don't have a clue. But what that moment anticipates is a moment in which you think, I think I need him, and I think he is for me. That's love. And here's why it's, crucial for you to get that about obeying your parents in the Lord because what they are commissioned to do as your parents is this look when you were a toddler and you fell on your took a lot that's a Yiddish word took the soft part you fell a lot and they held your hand and they held your hand not only to keep your balance but that so you would not fall down the stairs into the street on top of the fire pit They did all of that. They're trying to hold you up to help you learn to walk. Why? Because there would be a day is coming when they are not around. And they are teaching you how to walk so that someday you will be able to walk in a particular direction, away from folly and towards wisdom, toward the Lord in goodness, out of love for Him. Because they will not be here forever. The reason it matters, all of this, about obeying your parents in the Lord is because they are teaching the the first steps of what it means to follow God. At least that's their calling. That's That's their responsibility. That's their privilege. They are teaching your first steps, the first movements in what it means to follow God. That's big. And you've got to hear that. It's not just them enjoying telling you what to do. That's following them in the Lord. They're guiding your steps. They're not simply watching over you because they like having authority. There will be a day when they will not be looking over your shoulder. And your learning to obey them is a little classroom for learning how to obey God. Just so you know that Paul is not talking out of his us, that he is not just saying that because like the parents send him a little kickback and say, Yeah, include a little in your letter about them being obedient to us. He didn't. That's from his own world. He's not a parent, he's a single dude. And that's why as soon as he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, he references that commandment. Remember last summer we talked about the commandment honor your father, your mother, your father, and your mother. Remember that? No, of course you don't. Honor your father and your mother. Okay, what is honor? When you bow down? My Lord, my father, my mother, I love you. Kiss the ring. Is that, no. It is showing them respect because if it weren't for them, you wouldn't be alive. It is a respect for them because they have protected you in ways that you will have no idea. You don't have any memory of it. They have rescued you from more moments that would have been absolutely calamitous you know the moment where you were thinking i know i'll I'll tie my little brother with a bedsheet and dangle him at the window like that'll be great no that will not be great your parents had to intervene and interrupt respect is a form of understanding that responsibility they've had for you it's a sign of showing gratitude for what they've done and therefore honor is fitting honor makes sense and what Paul says is that of all the Ten Commandments, it's that commandment, the only one that has a promise. And I think, I think Moses and the Lord knew a thing or two because kids, they hear rules, they hear commands, and they go, oh my gosh, why? And God says, you know what, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you why. Because it's better that you honor them in what they're telling you. It is better. It is a better life. All the stuff you got to learn about the Lord and about love and about stuff and about work and about sex and all those things. It is better to have your parents in your court on those things. It is harder, it is harder for you to have to learn those things on your own. Your life in the land, he's borrowing an idea, will be better for you if you honor them. It's the same thing with the rest of life. It's just harder. Look, I know there are plenty of days where you can dream about them not being around. What do I know about that? But I would love for you to have your own little thought experiment at some point this week, if not today. Imagine if they were never around. Imagine how your life would be different. Imagine if you never got any help from them. Imagine if you spent the entirety of your life in your room and all they did was bring you food. You'd like that. At some level. But that's only because you don't see a much larger field. This is what kids need from parents. This is the implications of the gospel. And this whole family of God, it is the church. And I'll say it once, as I've said it a thousand times in the last six months. The church, the family of God, has a song. It has an inner music. It has an inner music that says unto each soul in this room, you are beloved because of what God has done on your behalf. And when that song goes deep, that song goes wide. And the family of God, when it comes to the children in its midst, they have one gig, they have one job, and is to help move that song deeply into every child's heart. But they need help. And they even need help from their kids. So let's pivot. We've talked about what kids need from parents. Now, i can talking to parents again, as if I weren't talking to you already. He's addressed kids, and then he says, fathers, and let's stop there for a second. You know, in first century idiom, sometimes uh, the, the writers of the New Testament will use words like brethren, Right? brethren, which is always encompassing of brothers and sisters. It's just a word. Um, Look, in modern parlance, we go, hey guys! It can refer to both guys and gals! It's just, it's shorthand. And in this moment, we might wonder, is Paul kind of saying fathers in lieu of fathers and mothers? Because look, the, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, obviously He believes, as we all believe, mothers are as important to the raising of children as fathers are. So it could mean that. And given what he's about to say to fathers, yeah, fathers have a problem, but if you think mothers don't have the same problem, well, you're wrong. What does he say to fathers? I think in particular he has to speak to fathers in the way that sometimes fathers can use their size, their stature, their strength and their power in ways that are contrary to what it means to be a parent now let the reader understand let those who have ears to hear, let them hear this can apply to mothers as well as fathers too but what does he say? Fathers do not provoke your children to anger (laughs) now I'm addressing parents I know of at least three people in the room that feel a sudden urge to take notes oh really? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That phrase in English, do not provoke your children to anger, is actually one word in the original language which might best be translated as the word exasperate. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Now once again, what he's saying to fathers can equally apply to mothers. Like mothers never exasperate their children. Like, never happens in our household. Um, Look, all of us, all of us, I know what it means to exasperate my children. I know what it means to provoke my children to anger. And I bet everybody in this room has a story. What does he mean? Where do we go? What's he talking about? If you are not clear in your direction to your children, if you're not clear in your direction, As grandparents or as caregivers, you will provoke your children to anger. Because if they're not clear about what's expected, and then you blow up when they don't get it, you'll provoke your children to anger. If you demand of your kids what they are not capable of doing, and then you shame them for not being able to do it, they will hate themselves And then they will take a little bit of that anger and hatred for wherever it's got to go. It's got to go somewhere. They rebound it back to you. If you ask more of them than they are capable of doing in a real way. And I know that that's a learning curve. I know that. Sometimes you're trying to figure out, is it too much for them? Or are they just not leaning in? I know that's a struggle. It's part of the struggle about learning to be a parent. Everybody's got a steep learning curve in this room. But if you demand from them what they're not capable of doing and you despise them for it, they will hate you for it a little. If you habitually say to them, because I said so, look, sometimes you have to. Time is not, there's not always the luxury of being able, now let's sit down, honey, and have a cup of tea, and let's talk this through. There isn't time sometimes. You gotta go, look, I said so, we gotta go. But if you do that habitually, and you never explain the wisdom behind your word, if you never talk about the goodness of what you're trying to point them to in the command that may be veiled and make absolutely no sense and be entirely counterintuitive to their world, if you habitually say, because I said so, you will provoke them to anger. And when they fail, and they will, when they straight up disobey or when they are so distracted by other things that they don't do what seems patently obvious to you when they fail if they don't hear you call them out and at the same time both see and hear and know that your love is rock solid for them you will exasperate them you'll provoke them to anger Look, what is at the heart of every father and mother that provokes their children to anger, I believe, at risk of oversimplification, is a forgetfulness. It is a forgetfulness on the part of fathers and mothers that we too once were young. It is a forgetfulness, if not a pridefulness, that forgets that we too are frail and fragmented and fragile and foolish, and can make choices and use words that betray a childishness. Were we the ones acting like the children and we're supposed to be the parent? It's a forgetfulness. But if I might say, go out on a limb here, the worst way you can provoke your children to anger is this. It is either subtly or explicitly to lead them to believe that they are their own salvation. That their deepest acceptance and deepest forgiveness and deepest form of reconciling their regret is all on them. That you lay on them the expectation that the only way they will ever escape their fears. Their regrets and their self hatred is to find a way to do it themselves. In other words, to teach them something diametrically opposed to the gospel. That their forgiveness, their acceptance, their regret is answered fully and finally and faithfully through His work. I'm going to show you a really difficult illustration of that. It's going to go fast, and I'm even Hesitant to bring it up, but it's, anybody ever see The Breakfast Club? I mean, look, it was the 80s, and you want to call it an oversimplification of youth culture then. I, I think John Hughes had his finger on the pulse. That storyline six kids, vastly different backgrounds, they've all gotten busted for doing something, they're all at detention, and they all kind of show a view of themselves on the front end, and then as we pass through the course of the narrative storyline, they begin to reveal what is most true of them, and what is deepest animating impulses in them. And one of those characters is played by Emilio Estevez, who's an up-and-coming wrestler in high school. And in the first scene of the film, his dad drops him off in the pickup, and he looks him in the eye, and he says, Son, cut the shenanigans, you're going to blow your ride. Meaning, you keep doing this, you're going to lose your scholarship, and then your life is over. That's what his father essentially tells him. And then here, as the kids are all kind of sharing their own hearts with each other, that wrestling kid kind of explains what most motivates him to do everything, and including the thing that landed him in detention. Said I did it for my old man. I tortured this poor kid because I wanted him to think that I was cool. He's always going off about, you know, when he was in school all the wild things he used to do. And I got the feeling that he was disappointed that I never cut loose on anyone, right? He's like this, he's like this mindless machine that I can't even relate to anymore. Andrew, you've got to be number one. I won't tolerate any losers in this family. You know, sometimes my knee would give and I wouldn't be able to wrestle anymore he could forget all about me your story doesn't ever have to end up on a film you can still insinuate to your kids you have to win we want good for our kids we want them to flourish I will just tell you how subtle and easy it is to give them the expectation that they are going to have to be the ones to outrun everything that they fear, everything they regret, everything they know they're going to need forgiveness for. What's the alternative to provoking your kids to anger in those sort of -of run-of-the-mill ways and in that deep ways? What's the alternative? He says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. to set for them an example and to speak to them about what it means. The word there for bring up is, is, is essentially the word for nurture or cultivate, like you're cultivating a garden. That's why they call it kindergarten. It involves training. It involves pointing. It involves warning. It involves asking their forgiveness when you screwed up including all the ways that you knew you did it wrong. Uh, This is a poignant way of putting it, but Dan Allender, a wonderful counselor maybe you're some aware of, he he says this, um, it doesn't matter what parenting style you use, you will inevitably screw up your kids. (laughs) As soon as they're born, we might as well apologize immediately saying, I'm so sorry for all the damage I will cause and the therapy you'll require because of me. That's not an attempt for parents to sort of let ourselves off the hook. But it is to acknowledge uh, we will need grace as much as our children will need grace from us. So what is the alternative? And I, you know, we could talk about a million ways in which it is to raise our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How about I just center on one thing, and that's the main thing. What's the main thing? What is the one thing that they most and must hear from us as often as we can utter it, whatever the moment calls for it? This will be a funny way of trying to illustrate it. I'm going to share with you a moment from Man of Steel. Uh, A young Clark Kent, he's a teenager now, his voice is cracking still. He has just saved all of his friends uh, from a bus that has fallen into a river. And the kids saw him lift up the bus, so much for concealing his identity and he didn't know. He didn't realize that he was an adoptive child. And in this moment, now that he is aware, and now as it's filtering her out among the moms with the kids on the buses beginning to get aware, his adoptive father no longer has a choice. His adoptive father is now here to say, I gotta tell you who you are. And here in this moment, just lean in, will you? You're the answer, son. You're the answer to, are we alone in the universe? I don't want to be. And I don't blame you, son. It'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear. But you're not just anyone, Clark. And I have to believe that you were... that you were sent here for a reason. All these changes that you're going through, one day... one day you're gonna think of them as a blessing. And when that day comes, you're gonna have to make a choice. Choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. Can I just keep pretending I'm your son? You are my son. But somewhere out there, you... you have another father, too, who gave you another name. And he sent you here for a reason, Clark. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. Clark knows, sees, and feels the love that his father, Jonathan, has for him. It's undeniable. It's palpable. But what his father is out to tell Clark is, He has another father, one whom he has not seen, but who is real and who has made him for a purpose. It's the calling of fathers and mothers. You are an emissary from God, you have been entrusted with a responsibility, but you are not a substitute. You will rescue them in many ways. But you are not their savior. And if you ever begin to treat them as if you are their God and they owe ultimate allegiance unto you, you have forgotten yourself. Sinclair Ferguson is a wonderful Scottish pastor who I will remember it till the day I die, what he said one time I heard 15 years ago. The only thing that you and I will ever touch that will last for eternity is children. Not your vocations, not your vacations, not your accolades, not your degrees, not your skills, not your music. They will last, the rest will not. And I need to hear that too. They belong to him first before they ever belong to you. And it's our job, I believe, to remind them of that truth at the same time that you show them all the love that you can as the first picture and window of what that is. How do I wrap this up? It is true for everybody in this room, whether you are a biological parent or someone that helps out in children's ministry, every six weeks some of you in this room are drowning in parenthood right now (laughs) here baby Um, some of you are on the downhill slope of whatever you think parenting is and and some of you who i guess in some sense you'd say you're done with that work you're never done and again whether or not you have biological children or you're responsible for children at some point in some way along the way as a teacher a caregiver an aunt a caregiver whatever here's the case. What is one word that is true for all of us? I'll end on this note. Uh, Reverend Ames is a character in Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize winning novel called Gilead. And I've quoted a lot. You may think, that must be the only novel you ever read. Um, But Reverend Ames is a Congregationalist minister who has had a child at a very old age, like Abraham. And he's written a memoir unto him because he knows he's not going to have time to say everything he wishes he could have said to that kid because he'll be dead before the kid can never have ears to hear and in one moment, he's on a Sunday morning, he's praying and meditating upon the passage he's going to preach that day. And it's the passage from Genesis where um, Hagar and Ishmael are sent out to wander in a wilderness. And he's praying through that moment, praying through that passage, and then thinking about the implications of it. And he and he says this that he includes in his memoir, he says this we send our children into the wilderness. Some of them on the day they are born. It seems for all the help we can give them, some of them seem to be a kind of wilderness unto themselves. But there must be angels there too, and springs of water. Even that wilderness, the very habitation of jackals, is the Lord's. And I need to bear this in mind. Grace follows us in all sorts of places. And grace goes with them in all sorts of places where you have absolutely no influence or control. But if the gospel is true, then I might rest in that and find my resolve in it. And so we do. And we lean in. It's our privilege and our calling. Kids need parents and parents need kids. And we all need the grace of the Lord in Jesus to walk both ways in the minefield of what it means to be a kid and what it means to be a parent. And that's why it's good that we're coming to the table right now. A father sends his only son to be a sacrifice for us, that we might become children of God, and then discover what it means to love like a father and a mother. Let's pray. And so, Lord, I pray for us all, whether we are young. Whether we are older, whether we are biological parents, or grandparents, or caregivers, or teachers, or simply those who love and know their love for their children, Father, would you prepare for us a table in the presence of the enemies of our own hearts, and to know that you walk before us, that you would comfort us. And that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your own name's sake. For ourselves and for the kids we find around us. In Jesus' name, amen.